Well, uh, thank you, Pastor Steve, and uh, good morning, Bethel. It's great uh, to be back with you again. I appreciate that very kind and gracious introduction from your pastor. It's great to have friends, isn't it? And uh, I think God will forgive him for some of those exaggerations and uh, probably forgive me for enjoying them. So it's uh, great to be back with you. Uh, Cindy and I have known uh, Steve, as he mentioned, for uh, decades now, and uh, we're just uh, so, we enjoyed his ministry when he was at College Park Church in Indianapolis, where we've been longtime members. And then when God uh, promoted him from associate role to a senior role here, and then to see how God has uh, blessed this church and its uh, campuses through Steve's uh, wonderful leadership and the, the team he's built, uh, we're just very, very thrilled. We're very proud of him, and it's a very humbling thing for me to be able to speak in his, in his absence. Uh, as you know, this month, uh, Steve has been leading in a study of biblical relationships, particularly related to the family, and today he's asked me to uh, speak on the subject of parenting. And uh, I would suggest that the greatest joys most of us are going to have in life will be related to our children and our grandchildren. And the opposite is true, too. For many of us, the greatest heartaches in life and burdens we will carry will be related to our children and our grandchildren. That's why the subject of parenting is such a critical issue. And so with our time in the scriptures ahead of us, I'd like to lead us in prayer, and then we'll be turning to our text. Bow with me, please. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll uh, help as I open your word. I pray you'd help me to speak it and explain it clearly and precisely in a way that's engaging, that makes it easy for these dear folks to, to listen and to understand. And I pray that the Spirit of God would empower your word so that uh, non-believers would be drawn to faith in Christ, that carnal Christians would be convicted of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come, that godly Christians will be encouraged in their faith, and that Jesus Christ and the supremacy of your word over the world's theories and the world's practices would be demonstrated. We ask for your help, Lord. Our families are desperately in need in our culture. So help us to understand your word, and we pray that there would be a corresponding commitment to not only understand, to hear, but also to obey. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Because our greatest joys as well as our greatest sorrows in life are probably going to be connected with our children and our grandchildren, it's wise for us to turn to the word of God uh, for answers. My primary text for today is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to that uh, passage, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, or your electronic device, if that's what you're using. A lot of us uh, are like the uh, Old Testament Christians. We scroll through the scriptures these days. So uh, whatever you have, if you'll turn to that, please. And uh, we're going to focus our attention on Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, which in my opinion is the single most helpful verse in the New Testament on the subject of parenting. The Word of God says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That verse can be broken down into five key phrases or aspects that we can look at and analyze to give us a biblical approach to parenting. The first phrase is this one, and it gives us the goal of parenting. The Bible says, bring them up. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. Now, the word translated bring them up means to nourish up to maturity, to nurture, to rear up. The word is not confined to the nourishing of a child physically, but includes training in the various departments of life. This word, this phrase, is a translation of one Greek word, a a verb that's put together in a very precise form that communicates three key uh, bits of knowledge that are helpful to us. First of all, it communicates to us the fact that children do not grow up automatically by themselves to be what God wants them to be. Uh, Proverbs 22 verse 15 says, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child but the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Uh, Proverbs 29.15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Children do not automatically grow up to be what God wants them to be. They have to be brought up to accomplish that. Second, the, the way this word is put together, it communicates the fact that this is a command from God, which he expects us to obey. It's not one of many alternatives from which you may choose on how to raise your children. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is the only option available to you. This has to be your goal. And you must resist the teaching of our, uh, of our world and our society that would point you toward other goals. As a Christian, your goal is to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And then finally, the construction of this word helps us to understand that this is a task in which parents must be constantly involved. There's no time, day or night, no circumstance or situation or place that is off limit for carrying out this responsibility. It it communicates the fact that this is an ongoing responsibility. Think about it this way. If over here is when a child is born, think about it for just a moment. What do you have when you have a brand new baby? People would say, well, hopes realized, excitement, uh, um, anticipation of the future, new phase, new chapter of life. Somebody might say a lot of bills. Uh, What I want you to think about is this. When you have a brand new baby, what you have is a precious human life, and that child is a sinner by nature and by choice. When I say they're a sinner by nature, what I mean is, You will never have to teach that child how to lie, cheat, or steal, but they will lie, cheat, and steal. You know why? Because it's just in them. They're just bent away from God's ways of thinking and acting. Why? Because mom and dad were like that. Kind has produced kind. So it's a a sinner by nature, and then it takes just a few weeks, few days, few weeks. Doesn't take very long until they'll start showing you they're a sinner by choice, too, because they can be perfectly fed, burped, dry, perfect environment, and they'll still be screaming in anger about something, all right? So here's what I want you to think about. When you have a baby, you have an individual that's a precious life, that's a sinner by nature and by choice, and here's the goal of parenting. Over the next 18 to 22 years, that's what it usually takes in our culture, the goal is that over this time period, 
you will have pointed this child toward the Lord Jesus Christ and his ways, and this child will have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Your job is to point them toward Christ. Their job is to choose Christ in his ways. And the goal is that by the time they leave your home, somewhere between the ages of 18 and 22, that this child has become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, first great commandment. And because they love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, they love other people. They're, not, they're focused on ministering to other, not on other people ministering to them. That is a huge task. And that means that when you become a parent, that basically you have signed up to be on duty, to be a goal-oriented person for the next 18 to 22 years. That's what it means. You're pointing them toward the Lord Jesus Christ. God intends for our homes to be places of discipleship. And consistently, the goal is we're to be goal-oriented parents that whatever is happening in our home, as much as possible, we're using it to nudge our children toward Christ and toward his ways. The goal of parenting then is to lead our children to love Christ, to obey his word, and to function as an independent adult who thinks and acts biblically. Put simply, it means to make a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. God wants you to be a goal-oriented parent. That's the goal. We're trying at our house to turn out disciples, to take little disciples and help them become big disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is a very challenging goal, so the question would logically be asked, well, okay, but but how do you do that? Well, thankfully, God has not left us to our own imaginations. He's told us how to do it. The next phrase I want you to think about from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, is the phrase, "In in the discipline of the Lord. Depending on the version, this is translated nurture in the King James Version, or training in the New International Version, or the discipline in the New American Standard, or the ESV. When the Bible talks of bringing the child up in the discipline of the Lord, this phrase refers to the upbringing, the training, the instruction of a child, particularly by act. Training by act. That's what you should remember. And it means providing boundaries for a child and penalties for going beyond the boundaries. The goals are character development and equipping the child for life in a world full of boundaries. Now consider that. It's training by act. Providing boundaries, teaching the child to live happily within boundaries that somebody in proper authority has given them, and penalties for going beyond the boundaries and preparation for a life that's full of boundaries. So think of it this way. We're down here, early years, and we have a little child crawling. One of the first things that many children do is they go over to the wall, and one of the things that captures their attention is the outlet. And they reach up for that, and most parents say, what? No, with some authority. And at least what happened at our house, probably a lot of your houses, the child will look at you and then turn back and go right back to what they're going to do, right? All right? So when the parent has said no, boundary, when the child still goes for it, teaching by act needs to take place. Usually there's, right? We smack. You learn. You don't do, you don't do that. Okay? In the same way, when 
A child is told to pick, a four-year-old, say, is told to pick up their toys and put them away. Boundaries. They don't do that. Something needs to happen. And it's training by act. It may mean that the child is sat in the corner a little bit, or it may mean, okay, I told you to put your toys away. Give me your favorite toy. You can't play for that now for a day. But something happens by act. Same thing. That's what it is. The goal is that a child would learn to live happily within boundaries that other people have put on them, people in proper authority. The reason is, when a child's young, it's usually mom and dad, maybe grandparents, maybe somebody at child care that's providing the, the boundaries. But the older a child gets, there's going to be teachers. There's going to be coaches. There's going to be employers. There's going to be the government. And what we're trying to do is teach a child to live happily within boundaries that other people have put on you because we're trying to get you ready for a life that's full of boundaries. Now, in our flesh, none of us like boundaries. We, we have a tendency to push against them, all right? And yet, many of us have learned over the years, you know, it's just God's way. God has boundaries for us. He tells us, here's the way you ought to think, here's the way you ought to act, stay in my boundaries. And there's penalties if you go, go beyond them. Our goal is to prepare children to live in a world that is full of boundaries. Let me show you that this is how God deals with you and me. Put a finger there in Ephesians and go a little bit further in the New Testament to the book of Hebrews. And look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11, deals with the subject of discipline. has the same word here that we're looking at back in Ephesians. And some of you may want to do what I've done in my Bible, and that is I've underlined every occurrence of the word discipline. Let Let me read this passage of Scripture to you. And this is talking about how God deals with us as his children. Hebrews 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness." All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Could I have your eyes for just a minute? Let me quote quote that last verse to you. Hebrews 12, verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. And all God's people said, amen. Yet, to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. 
You see, you have to discipline at a point in time as a parent, but you're to discipline in a goal-oriented way, just like God does. When we sin, God disciplines us, but He disciplines us in a goal-oriented way. He disciplines us now for our good in the future. And children that do not learn to live happily within the boundaries that parents provide on them and later teachers and coaches and so forth are ill-prepared for life out here. I've done a few thousand hours of biblical counseling with families, and a while back I had a case where parents had brought in a teenager that had been expelled from school for sinful, illegal behavior, had been creating havoc in the home for a period of time, and it was obvious that the teenager did not want to be in the session talking to me. I mean, he came in with the bill of his hat pulled down so far I couldn't even see his eyes, and when I talked to him, he'd just kind of grunt and nod and everything. But as I gathered information from the parents and, and I got information from the past, but then as I started zeroing in on the more recent misbehavior and the issues, and when peop- the parents would tell me stuff about him, I'd usually turn to him and say, I'll call him Bill for the name. And I said, Bill, is that accurate or something? Do you want to add to that? And I noticed that it, the more I kept engaging him, he kept putting his head down, putting his thumb on the bill of his cap, and slowly but surely the bill on that cap starts coming up till finally I can see his eyes. And then as we start talking about the recent events at school and the, the heartache at home, uh, I could see him just sitting in his seat, just churn. You could just see him churning and the steam building. And as the parents were talking about one thing that had happened with him and uh, expressing themselves, all of a sudden he just erupted in the session. And he turns to them and with great disrespect and sinful anger, he just yells at them and says, well, listen, I'm 17, and in, and in so many days, so many months, I'm going to be 18. When I'm 18, you can't make me stay at home, and I'm going to move to Colorado. My friend says I can already live with him out there, and I'm going to get a job out there, and I'm, I'm going to spend my money the way I want to. I'm going to buy a car and go anywhere I want to, and you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to come in when I want to you. And he just went off like that. And after he made that speech... There's this unsettled calm in this counseling room, and God had to help me, because the first words out of my mouth were, I said, son, if I were king, I'd fix it so you could do that tomorrow. He looked at me like that wasn't what he was expecting from me. I said, you know, I think that'd probably be good for you. I said, it might be good for you. Just leave your parents, go, go live with somebody out there in Colorado. And I said, I hope you do everything you just said. But I want to tell you, it's not going to be the way you think it's going to be. Because I said, guess what? You're going to go out there and get that job. I I think it'd be real good for you to have a job. But the surprise for you is this. They're going to tell you what time to come to work. They're going to tell you what time you can eat lunch. They'll tell you how much time you have to eat lunch. They're going to tell you what time you quit. They'll probably tell you what you're going to wear. And they're going to tell you what they're going to pay you. They won't even ask you. They'll just tell you. All right? And uh, you're going to be doing the math. You, you know how much you're getting paid per hour, and you're multiplying out all the hours you're working. So you're thinking about how this money you're going to get in that first paycheck comes. Man, that's going to be exciting. And you'll slit that envelope, and you'll pull that out. And big surprise. The paycheck's not near what you thought it was going to be. Because while you're thinking about getting started in life, Uncle Sam's thinking about you retiring. <laughs> and... Uh, Without even asking, they're going to take out 7.65% of your, your income. And, uh, and they're going to take out federal tax, state tax, and, and that paycheck's going to be just about near what you thought it was going to be. And when you go buy that car, 
The state of Colorado is going to tell you how much you're going to pay for sales tax. And the state of Colorado is going to tell you which side of the road you've got to drive on. They're going to tell you how fast you can drive in different places. And they'll tell you how, fast, how much you're going to pay if you don't drive as fast as they tell you to. And I went on like that just a little bit. And I said, ended up saying to the young man, I said, son, I predict that six months after you've done what you've just said, living with dad and mom in Indiana is going to seem pretty tame. I mean, think about it, folks. The old, this is one of the things that young people tend to completely miss. The older you get, the more people put boundaries on you. And leaving dad and mom doesn't mean, most kids think when I leave, I can't wait to leave dad and mom because then I'll be free. No. <laughs> There'll be more people putting boundaries on you. I mean, I'll show you how bad it is. You can be an adult, as a godly Christian, a member of a Bible-believing, preaching, and practicing church. You can be tithing to that church. You can go to the services on Sunday morning. They're going to tell you when to stand up and when to sit down. <laughs> they'll tell you what time to be in your seat, and they'll tell you when you can leave. We live in a world full of boundaries. And part of getting a child ready to live well in that world is teaching them that like our world, that Jesus Christ has boundaries, has rules, has principles that are for our good. And learning to live happily within his boundaries, his rules, is the preparation for how to live out here. And learning to live in his rules are for our benefit out there. That's part of what it takes. And as a biblical parent, when you discipline your child at a point in time, you want to do it mentally with the stance. We want to discipline in such a way that, in effect, we're just nudging them one step more toward being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. God prescribes this kind of training with us. He says in Proverbs 13, 24, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. I think the Bible talks about at least six different forms of corrective discipline. These would include logical consequences, experiencing the fruit of sin, additional work, loss of privileges and rewards, the rod of men, and corporal punishment. Sometimes as parents in the the thick of parenting. It can be very, very wearisome when you're dealing with a child who's misbehaving and continuing to misbehave. But I would say to you as parents that neglecting to handle a problem may be far easier now, but it will not contribute to the goal of teaching the child to love Jesus and to function as an independent adult who knows how to live happily within rules. In fact, I would have you remember this statement, just add 10. Say that with me, would you? Just add 10, yeah. I've had some folks talk to me and, and come maybe for help because they're living with a child who's got the terrible twos. And I've had moms say to me, I said, I just can't wait till we get past the terrible twos. And what I think is this. You think you got it rough now? <laughs> just add 10. You don't get a handle on that attitude? You don't get that heart changed, just add 10. Then you'll start finding out what hard is. 
As parents, we can fight a kitten now or fight a tiger later. Time to fight it, particularly in the earlier years. Well, let's move on. There's a third phrase that helps us in understanding what does it mean to bring a child up? How do we do it? We need the, uh, the Scripture says, bring the child up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Let's talk about that word, the instruction of the Lord. This is the Greek word nuthesia, from which we get the word nuthetic. Sometimes you've, some of you have heard of nuthetic counseling, or sometimes called biblical counseling. And uh, this word is translated in our Bibles, admonition or instruction or warning. And when the Bible says, bring the child up in the instruction of the Lord, it is not, it means far more than do your best to see if the child gets a good education. Non-believers can get a good education. This means far more than that. God is saying to you as parents, when you bring your child up in the instruction of the Lord, in the nuthesia of the Lord, that this involves three key actions. First of all, it means that you discern thinking and behavior that God wants to change. You discern thinking behavior that God wants to change. This word is used also in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, where the Bible says, admonish the unruly. The term unruly referred to like soldiers marching and somebody's out of step. That's an unruly soldier. The scripture says we're to admonish the unruly. That is, we're to, we're to discern thinking behavior with our children when they are out of step with what biblical Christianity or proper behavior, proper thinking and behavior would be. Second, you not only discern thinking behavior God wants to change, but you use God's word by verbal means to change that thinking and behavior. In other words, we don't just talk about the Bible, we use the Bible. I want to exhort you to do that, parents. You know, all the, the verses in the Bible that talk about how powerful God's Word, you know, that is sharper than a two-edged sword and so forth, all those, those scriptures that talk about the power of the scripture relate to you when you are using the Bible to instruct your children. So when you have a child who's not listening to instruction and you see discerning you discern thinking behavior that need to change, and particularly when they are resisting it, what I want to encourage you to do is to take the sword of the Spirit out of the sheath as a parent and use it. Don't just talk about it, but use it. The way that happened at our house on occasion was that we were dealing with an issue with our children, and they're, they're, they weren't changing or growing. They were resisting, and there'd be times when I'd say, listen, go to your room, get your Bible, get your notebook, get your pen, Meet at the Christian t- uh, kitchen table in five minutes. And even when they were young, we would sit and we'd open the Bible and I'd take them to a particular passage of Scripture and I would say to the, the children, I'd say, okay, read that verse. What do you think that means? What else do you think it means? What do you think that means to you? What is God saying to you and me about what's been happening around here the last few days? And you use the scriptures. You don't just talk about it. You use the Bible. So what does it mean to bring a child up in the instruction of the Lord? It means you discern thinking behavior God wants to use. You talk to them about it. Using the scriptures to help motivate the the growing and changing. And you do this for the child's benefit and for the glory of God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.14, I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now, the goal, the goals of instructing our children in the Lord are character development and equipping the child to think and act biblically on his own. 
The desire is that the child not only knows what is right, but he will have the spiritual convictions to do what is right. Parents lose the ability to control a child the older he gets. Therefore, the older a child gets, the more important it is that he or she have godly convictions. And I would say to you as parents, go for the child's heart, go for their affections, go for their motivations. Yes, you have to deal with some of the fruit issues, the the behaviors, but the older a child gets, the more important it is that you are more focused on the heart issues, what's inside, why they do what they do, why they think what they think, rather than what they do. Because the behaviors, the fruit issues, are simply a manifestation of the heart issues. Usually when parents have a teenager that's out at night and parents... Um, can't go to sleep until the teenager has come home. That frequently is an indication that the parent is not convinced that the teenager, without them supervising directly, will choose to do what's right. Our goal is to build inner conviction, burning convictions that the child will do what's right. Think with me about it this way. Let's pretend that you've been parenting now for we're down here at this point, and you've been parenting for 18 to 22 years, and you're getting ready to say goodbye to your child. They're getting ready to leave. They're going to join the military, go to college in another state, uh, take a job with an uncle in Texas or something. But in effect, you're saying goodbye to your child, and they're leaving the home nest, all right? What I want you to think about is what would be in your heart if you're waving goodbye, if you were convinced that the 10 statements I'm going to read you were in your daughter or your son's heart. Okay? Here they are. The Bible is the inspired word of God and the final authority for my life. My purpose in life is to seek God with my whole heart and to build my goals around his priorities. My body is the living temple of God and must not be defiled by the lust of the flesh. My church must teach the foundational truths of Scripture and reinforce my basic convictions. My children and grandchildren belong to God, and it is my responsibility to teach them scriptural principles, godly character, and basic convictions. My activities must never weaken the scriptural convictions of another Christian. Marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, and my marriage will be a lifelong commitment to God and to my marriage partner. My money is a trust from God and must be earned and managed according to scriptural principles. And my words must be in harmony with scripture, especially when reproving and restoring a Christian brother. And my affections must be set on things above, not on things of the earth. Now, moms and dads, you're waving goodbye, but you're convinced that those 10 statements mark that child, what would be in your heart as you're saying goodbye to them? Tell me. Joy? Joy, Peace? What else? Confidence? Hope? Excitement? And wouldn't most of us wave and say, honey, (laughs) you're so much better off at this age than I was? Folks, what I read you is only 10. Only 10 basic statements that reflect godly Christianity. 
And the goal is not that your children know them. But the goal is that the children embrace them. As parents, your job is to point the children toward Christ and toward a life of biblical obedience. And children, it's your responsibility to choose Christ and a life of biblical obedience. You know, we live in a culture where the family unit is devolving. Our whole culture is devolving. But it's interesting, the worse things get in culture, the more God seems to be raising up wonderful, helpful resources to help us. And there are so many helpful resources available today for parents that were not available when Cindy and I were raising children decades ago that are wonderfully helpful. Let me show you one that addresses this matter. The book Sticky Situations is a, uh, is a book that is uh, 365 devotions for parents and their children. And you open up to any page, and there's a few short paragraphs that describe a sticky situation that a child might encounter. And then underneath that, there's two or three questions to kind of help you think through the situation. And at the bottom is some scripture that you might look at to kind of help you think through that sticky situation. It is a tremendous, tremendous resource for helping, to, to helping parents to teach their children how to think Christianly. And I would encourage you to make yourself aware of, of that book. Uh, for those of you here at the Crown Point uh, campus, there's some in the lobby if you'd want to look at it afterwards. Let's move on. Our fourth phrase that helps us in understanding the role of uh, parenting, uh, the Scripture says in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers do not provoke your children anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Let me talk with you about the one who is most responsible to see that what I've been talking about takes place, and that is fathers. The Bible teaches that the children are primarily dad's responsibility. The headship of the husband is a key Bible doctrine. Ephesians 5.23 says, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Not only does the headship of the husband a key Bible doctrine, but the Bible teaches that God holds fathers primarily responsible for what happens with the children. Here's an illustration of it from the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, the Scripture says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. I think that has to be one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Eli was the equivalent back then of what we would think of today as a pastor or somebody in vocational Christian ministry, somebody helping people with the spiritual side of life. And the scripture says his sons were worthless men. They didn't know the Lord. How sad. And then chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 says, And the Lord said to Samuel, who was an intern under Eli, The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And then in verse 13, For I have told him that I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not rebuke them. He's held responsible for his failure to confront his sons with his sin. What a father should do is to view everybody else as your assistant in carrying out this major responsibility. Mother, grandparents, teachers, pastors, coaches, Sunday school teachers, and so forth. You cannot blame others for the failure of your children. A concept that I was taught before we ever had children that have stayed with me might be helpful to some of you. Uh, at a conference that Cindy and I attended at our church before we had children, uh, one of the speakers speaking on the parenting uh, suggested this, that as men, as fathers, 
that we should view ourselves in business terms. Like, uh, in my case, I am the president and chief executive officer of Patton Incorporated. And what we do at Patton Inc., what we're about, is raising little uh, sinners to become big disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. And I'm the president and CEO. The buck stops at my desk. But this is a big job. I mean, it's 18, 22 years. Can't be around and do it all myself. I need help. What every president and CEO needs more than anything else is you need a good executive VP. And for me, fortunately, I had married one. And my wife has tremendous insights into parenting. And I would say just from a purely human standpoint, the good things that have happened in our family with our children are due more to my wife's influence than to my influence, which just goes to show what a great job I did in the executive VP I hired. <laughs> but this is a big job. You need more than just the president and CEO. You need, you need other end people. So Cindy and I had both been positively influenced by at least one of our grandparents. And so we know grandparents can have a big impact on a person's life. So we went, after our children were born, we had sit-down meetings with both of our parents. And we told them what our goals were. And uh, we said, I know in our culture, the culture says you grandparents spoil them and send them home and everything. And we said, we know you'll have some, do some things different with our kids than maybe we would. But we ask you to help us in pointing them toward Jesus and toward a life of biblical obedience. And then we went to the people in the, the church I was pastoring at the time when our children were just young, and we looked at some of the, we identified some of the families who were years ahead of us in the parenting cycle, and who seemed to be doing a good job, and we met with them, we interviewed them, and we invited them to speak into our lives, to advise us, advise us, and we invited them to speak into the lives of our children. Later, uh, I made it a habit that I went to all of our children's parent-teacher conferences, and I can't tell you how many teachers were amazed to see a dad come into a parent-teacher meeting. And I would say, well, I'm here because I think the kids are my responsibility primarily. You're working for me. I came to see how we're doing. <laughs> Sunday school teacher. And the goal is to build as many people as you can around, build a team around your children. Get as many people as possible, pointing them toward Jesus and loving him and living his ways and thinking his ways. You cannot blame others for the failure of your children. You are the one primarily responsible. A key principle of fathering is to be there physically, mentally, and emotionally. And being there physically is a greater challenge today for fathers than I think it was than when I was raising children decades ago. We've all heard the expression leaner and meaner. With the economic downturn, the tight finances, um, most men who are working full-time are working more hours than guys were 20 years ago. The drive times are longer, commutes are longer. It's just harder to be there, but have to work at that. As a rule, I have found two, thing, two things in my work with families on counseling, particularly regarding fathers. Fathers tend to grossly overestimate how much time they think they spend with their kids. They grossly overestimate it. Second, if I can get a dad to start spending more time, FaceTime, with his children and with his family, typically things begin improving in the home. Doesn't solve all the problems. But it is amazing what that can do to get things, the temperature, moving in the right direction. You know, uh, some, some statistics have been re released recently to point out just the significance of a dad's 
um, influence. 24 million children in the United States live in a fatherless home. 40% of students in grades 1 to 12 come from homes with no biological father. 71% of teenage pregnant mothers have no father in the home. 71% of high school dropouts have no father present. And a child is four times more likely to live in poverty if there's no dad in the home. Dads, you're really important. And I exhort all of the men, all of the dads here, to recommit yourself to being involved in the lives of your children. And for some of you who are not living with your biological children, I exhort you to consider what you can do to be a part of their life in a godly way even if you're not uh, living with your biological, biological children. Now, mothers are to be involved in this process. In fact, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Moms are strategic. Listen to me. While fathers have the greatest responsibility for the children, mothers oftentimes have the greatest influence. And I say to all of you ladies, all of you moms who maybe are, are parenting without the, the, the benefit of a godly uh, father, or you maybe you're a single mom, you can, have, you, can, you can do this. Moms tend to have the greatest influence in the lives of their children. So give your children a living role model of what it means to love Christ with all your heart, soul, and mind, and use that influence to point them toward the Savior. Now, the fifth phrase that we need to look at is uh, the tendency to avoid, which is do not provoke your children to anger. Now, this does not mean that you never upset, annoy, oppose, anger, displease, or cross a child. If it meant that, we're all out of business. It doesn't mean that. It does mean that we should not handle them in such a way that they will be incited to a wrathful kind of living and become angry young men and women. The warning is not about an incident of anger, but about a lifestyle of anger. The challenge, what God is warning us against, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. The challenge is to avoid raising a child like the person spoken of repeatedly in the book of Proverbs. For example, Proverbs 19.19 talks about a man of great anger. Don't raise one of those. Or Proverbs 22.24 talks about a man given to anger. Don't raise a child like that. Or Proverbs 25, 28 talks about a person, a man who has no control over his spirit. Don't raise a man like that. Now, when the Bible says, do not provoke your children to anger, you should know that the Bible talks about primarily two different kinds of anger. In fact, if you'll back up in Ephesians, um, you're in chapter 6. Look at chapter 4, verse 31. In Ephesians 4, 31 God lists six sins that he wants us to lay aside, get rid of. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Notice number two and number three in the list. He says, let all wrath. This is the Greek word thumos. Here's how you can remember the word. Let me have your eyes, please. Look at me. Picture a volcano and then picture a volcano exploding while you say the word. Thumos. That's exactly what it means. Thumos is an explosive outburst of rage where the energy generated by the anger is directed outward toward people and toward things. And in our culture, we have all kinds of phrases to talk about that. We talk about people going postal, uh, blowing their cool, um, pitching a fit, ranting and raving, uh, throwing a temper tantrum, 
you know, all of those are what the Bible captures in the word thumos. But notice the, the third word listed there in Ephesians 4.31. He says, let all anger be put away from you. Uh, anger is the, the Greek word orge. This refers to the slow, settled burn. This is the, the settled indignation. This is the, the willingness to wait a long time for revenge. Orge could be apathy or indifference or withdrawal. Or sometimes with children, it's the sticking out the lower lip. Or with children, sometimes it's the, the refusal to communicate. And here's how you can remember orge. Just think of the Greek word and then just say it with some expression. Orge. That's what it is. <clears throat> the energy generated by the anger is turned in on oneself. And we have phrases for that. We talk about people who always have a chip on their shoulder. We talk about people who get up on the wrong side of the bed every day. We talk about people who cop on an attitude. That's orge. And what the scriptures are saying is do not raise a child whose default response to not getting their way is either thumas or orge. Don't turn out one of those. Some of the ways that parents provoke to anger is through a lack of marital harmony, establishing and maintaining child-centered home, modeling sinful anger and being inconsistent with discipline, being harder on the child's mistakes and sins than your own, and failing to build a relationship with the child. Let me quickly just summarize what we've been talking about. Let me show you a diagram that captures this. The goal of parenting is to bring the child up. It's 18 to 22 years. In the early years, what should be at an all-time high is the discipline of the Lord. You can get a lot of training done that'll help a child later in life in these early years when you're teaching them to live happily within boundaries that somebody in proper authority has put on them. But it's not just discipline, it's also the instruction of the Lord. <clears throat> and you can teach a two-year-old, but just add 10, you can teach a 12-year-old a whole lot more. So it's going to go this way. What I want you to notice is that whether you are disciplining or instructing, it's always with a goal orientation. You've got to deal with stuff at a point in time, but mentally, we're goal-oriented. We want to do it in such a way that's going to help, in effect, nudge the child toward becoming a stronger follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another way of thinking about this chart would be thinking that the goal is still to bring the child up, but the older a child gets, there's a decreasing parental responsibility. If you have a four-year-old that gets into trouble, you're responsible, but add 10. You got a 14-year-old that gets into trouble, yeah, you're responsible, but that teen is responsible too, because while there's decreasing parental responsibility, the older a child gets, there's an increasing child responsibility that need to be pointed out. Let me mention some other resources that you may want to take advantage of. Uh, these are wonderful, well-written, sound, soundly theological books that explain biblical parenting and are very, very helpful. I would encourage you to become familiar with uh, the, this kind of literature. It's so helpful in our day and time. I'm going to close with a short essay. And in my mind, it's called Wet Oatmeal Kisses. And the author is uh, unknown. In my mind, this is a single, this, excuse me, this was a mother raising multiple children. The kid's been driving her crazy. She's tired. She's wore out. She's frustrated. She finally got them to bed. There's some peace and quiet around the house. And uh, she's going to take a nap herself, but she's just so frustrated. She calls her mother. And her mother, from a different perspective now, looks back and counsels her daughter on what she's going through. And after the phone call, the daughter goes to sleep 
And in my mind, she has a dream. And in the dream, this is what's going on. The The baby is teething. The children are fighting. Your husband just called and said, eat dinner without me. One of these days, you'll explode and shout to the kids, why don't you grow up and act your age? And they will. Or, you guys get outside and find yourself something to do, and don't slam the door. And they don't. You'll straighten their bedrooms all neat and tidy, toys displayed on the shelf, hangers in the closet, animals caged. You'll yell, now I want it to stay this way. And it will. You will prepare a perfect dinner with a salad that hasn't had all the olives picked out and a cake with no finger traces in the icing. And you'll say, now this is a meal for company. And you and your husband will eat it alone. You'll yell, I want complete privacy on the phone. No screaming. Do you hear me? But no one does. No more plastic tablecloths stained with spaghetti. No more dandelion bouquets. No more iron-on patches. No more wet, knotted shoelaces or muddy boots or rubber bands for ponytails. Imagine a lipstick with a point. No need for a babysitter for New Year's Eve. Washing clothes only once a week. No more PTA meetings or silly school plays where your child stars as the tree. No carpools, no blaring stereos, no forgotten lunch money. No more presents made of library paste and toothpicks. No more wet oatmeal kisses. No more tooth fairy, no more giggles in the dark. No more scraped knees to kiss or sticky fingers to clean. Only a voice asking, why don't you grow up? And the silence echoes, I did. Let's renew our commitment to being good stewards of the children we can influence become disciples of Christ.